0: The following content has been provided by RWTH Aachen University. Okay so um, a couple things um, that this is actually not news um, because you've all taken DIS1 or had a chance maybe to review the material in there if you didn't take the class. Um, This is about how you design experiments and we're going to just go really quickly over this to Um, remind you of a couple things that we introduced back then. There was the basic distinction of between groups designs and within groups designs. Um, And this is going to be what we will have a little exercise on here about. Um, As the, what it means, and these names are super easy to confuse, of course, right? As you probably might remember if you learned it's for DS1. Um, Between groups means everybody, is only taking one condition of the experiment. So between groups means you share, basically, experiment. You split it between different parts of the group. Right? So you guys all do, I don't know, linear menus. You guys all do circular menus. Right? Uh, or you all do like text entry via touch screen. You all do text entry via keyboard. Um, and then that's a between groups uh, setup. If we may have more, of course, right? Uh, This, what I just described, so it's like an an AB setup, where you say we've got two different uh, uh, situations, like the control group that uses the normal keyboard and the treatment group that uses uh, the touchscreen we want to evaluate compared to a standard keyboard. But there might be more. Maybe we have two new designs of keyboards and we want to compare it to the baseline of a traditional keyboard. Then you would have to split your users into three groups that would be like one, two, three, and each group would only do one condition. the great advantage, of course, is it's pretty clear if you over here only do one condition with the touchscreen and you haven't had a chance to learn about the experiment or what we're doing with you know, the other keyboards. Right? So we don't get learning effects. So nobody is better in one of the later treatments just because he's done the other conditions before. Um, you usually use this Um, for things that are fairly basic cognitive processes. classic example would be maybe, um, you know, reaction time or something like this. Um, Why? You know, tapping, dragging, or, or visually searching something on a screen. Why do we do it with these kinds of tasks? What do you think? What's the reason for that? What's a good reason? Why would you do these simple cognitive tasks in a between-group setup. Or let's put it the other way around. What's the danger of between-group setups? Yeah? Learning effects. Learning effects is not a danger of the between-group setup because it's not happening, right? between-groups doesn't have a learning effect. You only do one condition. You don't learn between conditions because you only do one as one user. Yeah?
1: Uh, That you um, have a bad sample and then one group is for some reason better at your task
0: exactly exactly Uh, you know my standard example I think we use this in DIS one as well is all the stupid people are sitting near the door all these smart people are sitting near the window and then I always get smiles from the window side it's so cute Um, so if that was the case right then splitting the group in between would mean for for difficult cognitive challenging tasks uh, we would get you know a distortion of the results but the general agreement is, among, psychology, among psychologists, that these basic cognitive processes, like you know finding something on a screen, is something where people perform pretty much the same. Right? There aren't these huge individual differences um, between whether I ask you to drag an item from A to B or whether I ask you to do this. Whereas if I asked... You know, if I split the group and said, you know, translate this from Chinese to Arabic, then probably there would be vast cognitive differences, right? Some people really know how to do this, others don't. Or I ask, please code this in JavaScript. Right? Some people, are like, yeah, easy, you know, others have no idea. So basically stuff that isn't very much, you know, it doesn't involve a lot of learning or education or, you know, a specific cognitive higher level skill, there are the differences are pretty much negligible. That's why it's okay to do between groups. Of course we need more people right you know two conditions twice the number of users to get the same effect sizes and stuff Um, within groups it's the you know it's the opposite of course we would basically say everybody in this room if you're all my users would do all the different conditions that I have set up for you Um, that means I don't need as many people to get a specific you know number n for each condition because all of a sudden you know the whole class does all of the conditions so every condition is being done with whatever, you know, 30, 40 people in the room. Um, and the big advantage is, of course, if all the smart people are to the window side, it doesn't matter because you, know, you do all the conditions. Right? So within your results, the, the differences in, in skills will cancel each other out. Here are some examples of what you know, we consider complex tasks, typing, reading, um, composing uh, a text, for example, or solving a, a problem. Uh, But, of course, the the problem with those things is that you may get these learning effects or practice effects. And remember, there are some ways in which learning effects mean that somebody does better in the second condition, but we've also seen the opposite being possible, right? Fatigue effects, for example, that people get worse in in a a later condition. All right, so just as a visual reminder here, uh, we've got two conditions, A and B. In a between-groups design, we basically have some people who get the treatment A and some other people who get the treatment B, whereas in the um, within-groups design, we manipulate the very, you know, we have these two conditions, A and B, but the same person gets both conditions one after the other. All right, so now if we do a within-groups design and we have, let's say, type on a touchscreen and type on a hardware keyboard, um, and we do it in this room, everybody does both conditions, we start maybe seeing these issues with learning effects. Let's say for a moment that we still want to do a within-groups design because you know, we may not have enough people otherwise in our study. What can we do against the learning effects? Well, uh, we can change these things by, by sort of... Or we, will have, we will see a variety of different effects by doing these things in this particular order. If for example I said okay all 30 people in the room all do the hardware keyboard first and you do the hardware keyboard exercise and I say okay now everybody do the touchscreen keyboard exercise right and so you have to done all done these two and everybody and I make maybe I even make you guys type the same sentence on both keyboards by the time you get around to this touchscreen of course you know the sentence you've read it already you've typed it once you know you've got it in your short term memory so you're going to be probably you know this is going to improve your results on the touchscreen side. It doesn't mean that your touchscreen is going to be better, but it will be better than it would have been if you hadn't had the hardware keyboard first. So that's an example of something carrying over um, from a, an earlier condition. For example, um, here we have, you know, we have an example where you, you test the first condition and then maybe your fingers hurt from, because the typing is really hard or something, or you have to do some weird uh, contortions with your fingers, then that would make you worse in the second condition. Or the example that I just gave, um, if you type a sentence and you remember it, then you are going to be having an easier time in the second condition. Practice effects, learning effects, you could say, always build up, and you could actually say a progressive as a progressive error. if I first gave you the touchscreen condition, had you type a sentence and then gave you the hardware keyword condition, you would also have a learning effect, right because you again, you know the sentence in the hardware keyboard condition but this time you would be sort of benefiting the hardware keyboard condition so a progressive error is something that happens simply because you gain experience you learn something you 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 get something that you learn something in the course of the experiment um, and it doesn't matter in which order they are being done simply the later ones are benefiting for example from the earlier ones that would be a typical example for a practice effect, right? You've done it, you've learned something, the, sec- the later conditions get better. Another example, a typical one, would be fatigue. If all the different conditions are equally tiring, then the last one will have you know, a, a negative effect on its performance because you've done all the others before, simply because it's tiring. You know, if things just take too long and your, your, your attention sort of, you know, wanders off. So these progressive errors, practice effects or fatigue, whatever they might be, um, are things that always happen simply because we make you do multiple uh, repetitions of the same thing in different conditions. Whereas a carryover effect is something where a specific uh, condition causes something. Let's say the hardware keyboard is really something that makes your fingers hurt. Then if you do the touchscreen first and then the hardware keyboard second, that effect would not come up because after the hardware keyword, you're done with the experiment. Your fingers still hurt, but you're not asked to do another condition. Anyway, um let's let's think for a moment. These are these are effects that change stuff, right? So remember what we said about validity of experiments. Which kind of validity are we are we threatening here? What what's getting uh what what are we messing with in this example? Yeah? Internal validity. Why, why is it internal validity? Because we uh, changed the um, correlation between our variables. Uh-huh. Maybe. Possibly, right. We may be doing that. So it's not about external validity, meaning you know, is our result applicable to a larger audience out there? Is it you know generally true for whatever, a broad part of the publica- pub- population? It's about the question... Are our results internally that we determine the differences between these conditions? What we get are these actually going to be true? So we're messing with internal validity. What can you do against this? You should probably know this from from DIS1, yeah? Everyone can have the keyboard um, designs in a different order, for example. Exactly. You have some people do the touchscreen first, some people do the hardware keyboard first, right? Uh, that will fix things, and that's called counterbalancing. So. You basically, this is a very very general example of how to do that, Uh, you just balance things out across conditions. In the simplest example, two conditions, I'll have you guys first do the touchscreen, then the hardware keyword, and the other half of the class do first the hardware keyword, then the touchscreen. Problem solved. For the most part. Um, If the effect of the order is really, really major, it will still be a problem because the order effect, and this I'm, I'll ask you to consider this from a mathematical point of view for a second. Um, if the effect of the order is really, really big, then it will sort of cancel out or be, you know, it will make the actual effect you are trying to measure disappear in the noise, right? So if you're like five times faster in the second condition uh, because of the learning effect, then I'm going to have a hard time seeing anything useful in the data, even though I'm balancing things out, right? I'm just washing. Out the m- small differences that I'm looking for, but in general, uh, you know, counterbalancing can take care of the order effects. Um, yeah, go ahead.
1: Uh, maybe sometimes counterbalancing uh, could not work, I guess, because um, there's only if you if you have uh, two actions that relate only in one direction. For example, you have like for. A really stupid example, you yeah. have a question, yeah. and you give them the answer first, yeah. and the question, then obviously in this direction, it will, um, it will yeah, influence yeah. The, the result drastically, but in the other direction around, if you give them the question first, and then the answer, it will not influence it, uh, influence the stuff at all. So ah, uh-huh. that stuff, maybe there, you have some relations where, where, where you can't counterbalance, because there is no, in one direction there is no... Um, Learning <laughs> effect or nothing that, that can counterbalance the other.
0: Okay, do you have a, a, a more realistic example that, that inspired that, that, I that did, thought?
1: I didn't think of one, but I th- just thought of the mathematical.
0: Yeah, yeah. So mathemat- I, see, I see your point. If, if there is no effect in one direction and a strong one in the other one, it might, might be an issue. If you come up with a, with a good example where that might happen in a sort of a realistic question, I'd be interested. I don't have an idea off the top of my head. Just real quick, Latin square uh, again, covered in DIS1, uh, in which you basically say if you have more than two conditions, in this case we have, um, for example, one, two, three, four, five, six different treatments that we want to do. Those could be different types of keyboards, right? And um, in this case, what you need to do, you need to make it so that every one of these conditions, every one of the keyboards, gets sometimes used as the first one, sometimes get used maybe as the last one, Um, and if you wanted to do all of them, then that's a lot of different combinations, right? Obviously, if you have six treatments and you want to do all possible combinations, then that's a lot of different orders, so you would be really cutting down your number of users for each different order to a very, very small number. But you don't need to necessarily do that. Latin square is kind of a nice hack that gives you a compromise, right? You're not doing every possible... Um, order combination. Could somebody with mathematical skills in the room tell me how many op- uh, options we would have if we tried every single permutation of these six treatments? 6 factorial. again? Six factorial. six factorial, right? So that's a lot of numbers, right? Um, so that would be a lot of different setups which, which would split your user base into very, very really small groups. So that's that's not realistic. But this one, Latin square, basically gives you something close to that where every condition will precede and will also follow each other condition at least one time in your order. Right? Okay, so we've covered this in DS1. I'm not gonna go into too much of this or how you built these and, and stuff like this. Uh, there's a construction procedure. When you measure performance, uh, let's say we have this example of a touchscreen keyboard. I can measure a couple of things. I can measure initial performance where I give you the touchscreen keyboard, You get no chance to practice with it at all. You just start typing, and I immediately measure how you do. That, however, is usually not a very useful measurement for most tasks because usually we're not interested in the very, very beginning of your skills, but your your skills as you sort of plateau after a while, once you've used it a little and you get used to it. So we want to get rid of these learning curves um, when we want to measure sort of sustained usability of something in the sort of, you know, steady state. Um, And so here is an example of that. We might have two different types of keyboard. One might actually be faster to use at the beginning, but it may not give you that much gain over time as you learn it. The other one may be slower at the beginning, but as you practice it for a while, you might actually get faster. Um, These are two different learning curves. And the point here is not necessarily which one is better. It depends, right? Maybe if you have a system that's mostly for first-time users, maybe you want something that's easy to use at the very beginning, even though it doesn't give you as much you know, room to grow. But the point is if you want to compare them for a steady-state sort of regular use, you'd have to wait and give users time to practice with both of them before you start measuring. So the learning effect should be gone so that these are roughly you know, um, horizontal lines. Um, we almost always see these kinds of setups. When you read papers, you will see that usually users are given a few moments to you know, familiarize themselves with the setup at least, right, to get rid of this very initial curve. All right, so immediate usability in the beginning, sort of you know, skilled use is what you measure at the end, depends on what you're looking for. But this is fairly rare that you have no you know, prior exposure at all with the system. Uh, you don't see that very often. All right, quick exercise. Let's assume um, we do text entry research, right? We've read about text entry research. It's been our running example through the first parts of this class here. Um, So you are doing a new sort of keyboard uh, design setup. What would be one reason to choose a setup within groups or between groups? I'd love you guys to discuss that just in groups of two and uh, exchange your thoughts on this, and then we'll just spend you know, a minute or two on this uh, to think about this, and then we'll gather some thoughts. All right, so let's hear some thoughts. Um, well, why don't you start and tell us what are some arguments for doing it within groups? Um, I
1: guess, like, um, um, like, if you are interested in, like, the performance, like, general performance of, like,
0: new text and entry, like, technique or something, Is better because uh, we can uh, test d- like different methods among different methods to like, like the general
1: group of people. So uh, it's okay to have a limited number of participants.
0: I think. Okay. Um, so within groups means basically, assuming this class is sort of you know, our user base, right? You know, everybody does the touch screen, everybody does the hardware keyboard. Right? for example, that would be within groups. So what you're saying as an advantage, can you explain your advantage again, what you see for within groups? Um, so uh, we can uh, like try out a new method for most, like, more people. Okay, ones. so we have a larger N, for sure. Definitely, okay. that's, that's always an advantage with within groups because we get more people trying out our system. Like every condition gets you know, twice the number of people if we have two t- conditions. Yes, back there.
1: There's a problem specifically with text entry is that in order to compare text entry is that you have to type the same sentence, right? Otherwise, you can't compare.
0: Right, so we did have a... Did we do the mobile phone version? Yeah, Where, where we had the setup was, I think, you know, actually you were typing the same sentence in both conditions, right? To really compare performance. And in that case, I will agree with you uh, that is a problem, right? Like if I type the, the same sentence. The yes, definitely. That's a problem with within groups. Because then you have seen the sentence already, and by the time you type it again, uh, you are already aware of the sentence, so you're going to be faster at typing it. Um, but maybe you don't have to type the exact same sentence. You know, maybe you can find a setup where you don't have to do that, where you basically find a let's say, representative paragraph of you know, text that has all kinds of letters and words and a good distribution of things, and they don't have to be the same in both conditions. You would have, would have to, of course, measure beforehand, maybe by having people type both of these paragraphs on the same keyboard, to see that they actually give you the same result and then not make one super difficult and the other one super easy. But if they are balanced, then you could say, I'm going to give people different text to type. Right? And in most cases, that's probably what you would do. You would probably not have people type the same thing. Yes, back there. The one good process within groups is that you don't like have to ask your users before test when you how much you type per week or these individual things. You Don't care about them. Okay. Okay. Yes. So. What we will get if we do it within groups is that we will cancel out this effect, right? Because everybody will type on every keyboard. So the slow typist will be slower on all of those keyboards. The fast typist will be faster on all of those. You may still want to ask for it and may still want to record it along with user's performance because maybe later on in your analysis phase, you discover, oh, it seems that there's something going on between, you know, skilled typists and slow typists. There might be an effect. You don't know. And so it's one one reason why it might be useful to still know that, but you are right, it's not strictly necessary for the baseline comparison. Yes?
1: Yeah. If you have no learning effect, if you, for one hand, know that there's no learning effect because there were some other uh, studies um, for two input methods, for example, or you suspect that there's no learning effect because they're really different, Mm -hmm. um, then you can do a within-group design and compare, actually, for example, if you have a normal keyboard and then you have a weird keyboard, mm-hmm. whatever, new input method, then you can already um, compare when you do it with, uh, and every user has to do both. You can see how well he types on the normal keyboard and then compares it to the new keyboard and maybe see if there's some kind of relation that good typists on the normal keyboard can also type on the new keyboard. and Right. They have the same, um, if, they, if it's um, new for them as well. So if they, maybe um, on, the, on the weird keyboard they um, behave exactly the same as users who are not used to type on the normal. Right,
0: so, so whether there's a skill transfer from the standard keyboard to your, your own prototype. Uh, yeah, and calling it a weird keyboard would probably be a bad choice of wording if you run an experiment. Yeah, please type something on the normal keyboard and on the weird keyboard. Uh, you know, remember biasing through language, right? That's, that's always a challenge. So. Um, but yeah, you're right. And in fact, in the end, uh, you would normally actually do a within groups design. Um, simply because of precisely what you said and what the other guys also brought up, if I have everybody do all the uh, you know, conditions, if I have everybody type on it, I will actually cancel out these effects of slow typists versus fast typists, and I will also get data that is very interesting because I can see how the same person does with both keyboards, how he performs or she performs. And that can, of course, be quite interesting to to see individually like within a per- the same person where you know their cognitive typing skills haven't changed right from one keyboard to the next uh, so you get like an experienced typist and you give them two different keywords and you know you might see um, quite clearly what the effect is um, but as we said last week if you have a situation where um, for example you give people a fixed sentence you would obviously have to do between groups because otherwise there's a strong learning effect in the second condition or here's another example Uh, let's say you have one keyword layout that favors uh, people who um, have uh, you know who are right handed over people who are left-handed and if that was the situation then it wouldn't make sense to test um, you know the keyword with left-handed people because they would perform really badly with it right Um, or if you have a setup uh, between conditions where you say um, I have the exact sort of um, same hardware, so there's nothing changing there, but I use different layouts. And of, obviously, you'd also have to make sure that you use different sentences to avoid those learning effects. Then you might go for, for a between-group split. Um, okay, so this was a little bit of a review, mostly, on how to uh, design experiments. Um, we're going to cover one more thing uh, before we get into a little big, uh, bigger um, exercise. And that is uh, paper reviewing. So remember, first class, we did contribution types, right? Seven contribution types. James uh, uh, Wobrock, Jake uh, uh, Robrock's paper is is really a good overview of what kind of contributions in uh, HCI are uh, typical. And we had the three kinds of research that we identified as well. Um, We're now going to look at the sort of reviewing side of things. So when you read a paper as, as you know, a student, and you're trying to collect related work. Um, you need to figure out, you know, is that paper going to be useful for me? And also, how, how much can I trust the results in here? Or if you are a reviewer, because you know, you're an expert in a certain field, you've worked in the field yourself for a couple of years, and you start getting papers from other people, submissions from other people that are being submitted to conferences, and you are being asked by the conference organizers to review that paper to decide whether it should be published. Right? Um, then you are going to be in that situation where you ask yourself, okay, I need to look at this paper and I need to decide how good it is. And the first con- uh, thing, of course, and the most key uh, part of what's good about a paper is the contribution, which basically means what new insight do I gain from reading this? Right? You know, I've, I've got the, no- the, the body of knowledge in HCI, and this paper comes in and I read it. Does the body of HCI knowledge grow? Do I get more than what I had before? That's the key question that you'll ask yourself as a reviewer of a paper. Um, and related but a little different is the benefit. To give you an example, um, let's say you have a paper that um, finds out that, I don't know, uh, typing on a keyboard on Mars is you know going to be much faster for triangular keyboards versus square keyboards. I'm making stuff up now. Um, you may be able to clearly prove that and, and show it in your contribution, but the benefit of the community at this point might be limited because yeah, we're not going to go to Mars for a, for a while and unless there is some other interesting insight to be gained from this, you may find that you know, the actual benefit for the, for the key community that you're addressing here is a bit limited. Like what, what you can actually sort of do with the results. And the reason why this is being pulled apart, although it's sometimes difficult to understand the difference exactly, is that we want to force authors to both think about what is the new knowledge that I'm bringing to the field and what can people do with that? How is it actionable? How does it become an actual help for practitioners or other researchers? So let's say you have as a contribution that you find that... um, you know, text entry, we're going to stick with that, you find that uh, typing on touchscreens is much faster when you, um, you know, you, you compare maybe typing on a touchscreen that's flat and you, ty- uh, and you compare to typing a flat, uh, on a touchscreen that is curved, let's say, right, just for, for the sake of argument. So the contribution is that you find out these differences. You show that, you know, with a curvature of, I don't know, 10 degrees over, uh, over a mobile touchscreen, uh, you know, typing speed increases by 5%, whatever. The benefit then would be, you could say, we provide design guidelines, for example, to developers of mobile devices that can improve users' performance with these devices. You know, as, for example, um, flexible screens become more uh, commonplace and, and curved displays become more commonplace, this will help manufacturers of smartphones to actually design text entry um, smartphones that are you know, more efficient in typing than your average flat phone. Does that make sense, right? You've got contribution and and benefit. Contribution is the key thing. It's the most important part in your paper. Um, Novelty basically asks, um, you may show something and you may prove it beyond question, uh, and it may be of great benefit, but we already know it because somebody else has already done the research. So mostly novelty will be decided on what has been previously published, what is related work, how much are you actually going beyond what's already out there then validity basically asks is what you are claiming properly backed up you know i may say typing on you know curved keyboards on touch screens is is you know 50% faster than on a, on a flat one and i claim this because I tried it the other night. I typed a couple sentences on a curved keyword prototype that I built for myself. I'm not going to show it to you, dear reader, but you've got to trust me. That's true. Well, so that's a claim, but I'm not really backing it up with anything that you, hopefully, would find trustful. right? Because that's not, that's not the way that you, know, you can prove scientific facts or at least back them up. Proving is always a hard, um, you know, is a strong word because we always have the Um, option with, you know, all these p-value testing and and significance testing that it might still be true that, you know, your hypothesis is not actually um, valid, but the likelihood of that is getting smaller and smaller. So anyway, so validity tells you how well is the paper backing up what it's claiming, it says. And then finally, applicability, that's really related to, uh, it benefits in a way, um, you could say, somebody submits a paper on on mobile touchscreens, but he sends it to a, a conference, that is all about interacting with wall displays. So you might say, yeah, this is great research, but you, know, you are missing the audience in a way, right? You should send this to a different audience. They might be a better fit for that paper. And then finally, um, not to be underestimated, although it comes last, is format. What that means is basically how well is the paper written as a, an, you know, as a technical text? Um, how well is it laid out? How clear are the figures? Um, sometimes people send you the most amazing ideas, and the description of it is so chaotic, or you know, you can't read anything in the diagrams because they use like a six-point font in their figures, um, or the figures are all like black on 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 gray, you know, so nothing to see, um, or the 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 argument is being is is jumbled. It's all in there somehow, but it's not structured in a clear way. That can have a major impact, probably more than it might maybe should have, but it does have a major impact on your likelihood of a paper to be accepted. So as an author, put on your author set for a second, you should always make sure that you don't leave anything to desire in this last part. Because let's be honest, this is high school stuff, right? Everybody should know how to write a clear text, how to lay out a paper, how to write text that is you know, properly readable, and how to draw figures that are you know legible and that are, that makes sense. So this is this is easy to learn. You read a book on, you know, technical writing and it will explain the last, you know, um, secrets of that to you. And every discipline has its own sort of preferences here, right? So you'll have to look at how do people write papers that for example, HCI research papers at Kai that get accepted and that get like the best paper award. Those are like the the stellar examples, prime examples that are like the top 1% of papers that uh, have been submitted to the conference. So look at a bunch of those and see how they work, how they structure their stuff, how well they're laid out, what they pay attention to. You can learn from that. You can learn a lot from that. All right, so let's assume now, put on your reviewer's hat, you've got a paper in front of you, okay? Um, you're supposed to review it. You know by now those are the things that you'll be looking for. How do you actually write a review? And I'll talk you through this because this is what... You know, we, Noor, our students here, myself, do a lot. We get p- p- papers from other researchers, our peers in the international community, and we have to look at them and review them. And you want to do good jo- do a good job because, you know, somebody else's academic career may well depend on how well he does with this paper. So how is a typical review uh, structured when you look at a paper? And we're going to use the example from Kai, right? So the actual top conference in the world on HCI research, um, on academic research in this field. How do they structure their reviews? The first thing is that you will have to give the paper that you are uh, reviewing in the end an absolute rating. Uh, you'll have to give it a point rating saying, one is a definite reject, up to five points is a definite accept. This is exactly the opposite on, of the German school grade system, so don't get confused. Say like, awesome paper, I'll give it a one. And then the authors are like, oh. Um, so one is a definite reject, five is a definite accept. There are usually like 0.5 distinctions uh, in between, but, you know, tendency is to have, a, have this five-point scale. Um, obviously, you don't get the paper, and the first thing you write down in your review is like, I'm giving it a 3.0, or I'm giving the 5.0, right? This you will fill in in the very end, but it's usually at the top of the review for uh, people who need to look at your review to be able to quickly parse it. The next thing that Uh, you'll have to provide is a short summary. And this is an interesting thing. Um, A lot of people love to jump in right into the review, but this makes you pause and really try to read the paper and draw out what you think the main contribution is. And here's the interesting effect. What this will do is, it will mean that you look at the paper and you pull out what you think is the author's main contribution. Now, if the author did a good job, then what you think is the main contribution of the paper is also what the author thinks is the main contribution of the paper. But you would be surprised how often there is a major mismatch in that. A lot of people, when you are an author, you are so deep in the woods, you're thinking about your paper, your research, you totally forget to make it obvious and clear what it is that you are actually contributing because you're so engrossed in the details. So here... The review sheet, the form, will ask you to state in your own words, not just copy and paste from the paper, state in your own words what you think the paper is contributing. What is the contribution and benefit? Um, So, you know, what's the contribution type? This is the first thing to look at. Remember, you know, Jake Wobrock's seven contribution types for CHI papers. Um, Is it a study? You know, is it an artifact? Is it um, a theory? Is it a, you know, um, what is it, opinion? Yeah, a survey, right? All these different things. Is it, is it data? Is it, is, it, is it a data set? All those kinds of things. And so this makes you step back and think about what is the paper actually trying to tell me. Um, and then you basically have pulled out the contribution and benefit. And then you go in and say, okay, if that's the contribution and the benefit statement, if that's what the paper is claiming it gives the community, I have to check. Are they the first to do this or is it something that's already been done? You know, is it maybe just a minor, minor change of protocol in their experiment and basically we already knew as a community uh, what the results were before this paper? If it's new, great. Is it valid or is it you know, somebody claiming things without backing it up? And here we get to what you were mentioning, internal validity, but also external validity. Right? If they only test it with a super... You know, super-constrained set of people who have very specific skills and then make a claim that it applies to the population at, at large, that's not a good idea. Uh, and then clarity of writing. You know, is, it, is the argument clear? Does the argument flow well? Are you, as a reader, do you get the feeling that the paper is taking you by the hand and really sort of leading you through understanding the argument point by point? And those, we call them concerns. You know, A, a lot of times you will be sort of criticizing things here, but you should also make sure that you pull out the positive things, right? I know it's hard for Germans in, this, you know, in particular to be positive. Uh, we love to criticize, we're good at that. So this will actually require you to go through a little bit of a cultural adjustment to also read things um, and look for the positive stuff in there and make sure that you mention that as well. Because that's very important for the author. Even if the paper gets rejected, if the author sees which parts you thought were valuable in that paper, They can hold on to those and change the things that weren't working. And then finally, these are suggestions for improvement. Uh, This is a term that is chosen very carefully. It might remind you of the idea of design patterns, maybe. Um, Suggestions for improvements means that you propose how the paper could be changed to be better. So rather than saying, your diagrams all suck, you say... Figure three on my printout came out as you know light gray on dark gray with six-point font. Make the font at least ten points so that I can read it and make sure that it you know prints well on black and white stuff like this. Um, or you know make sure to do another proofreading because the paper contains a lot of grammatical and typographical mistakes that could usually be caught easily by you know Microsoft Word or any other text editor. All right, so that's the structure. And then um, you finally also provide something else, uh, at least at CHI, um, which is your own expertise, which means when the committee that collects your reviews and then gathers them all together and makes a meta um, review and then recommends acceptance or reject uh, of the paper, um, they have to understand how well you know the topic. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that if you are less familiar with the topic that your review doesn't count, but a review of an expert in the topic who says, uh, expert basically means, I've written a bunch of papers in the last few years on this exact topic. I know all the related work that the author cites. I've read all those other papers, too. I know the field. I know exactly where he's missing things. That will make your review a very strong one. because that means that the committee can say, oh, this guy really knows the field, so if he says this is new, we can probably trust that because he's likely to have read all the existing work actually himself. If, on the other hand, you have only passing knowledge of the field, like you've read a few papers about it, you haven't published about it yourself, you're just getting into the field maybe, um, you might still say, awesome paper, I think this is a great idea and I've never seen this before. But if you are you know, just passing knowledge, which would be like a two or maybe even one, meaning no knowledge in this particular field of HCI before, then you know, the committee would say, well, he says it's new, but he's also somebody who's not very familiar with the field. So, eh, you know, not sure whether that's going to be carrying as much weight. On the other hand, sometimes an outsider's review is important because it shows whether the paper is clearly written, whether people can understand it, even when they're not from that super specific subfield. So, again, text entry, the example would be, an expert would be somebody uh, like, you know, uh, Schumann's Zai, you know, IBM research. He's written text entry papers for his entire career, right? He's designed text entry methods for mobile devices. He knows this stuff by heart, right? Um, on the other hand, somebody who's never written a text entry paper is just getting into it would be just maybe a no knowledge or a or, or passing knowledge person. All right, so, Um, Now, here's a little bit of a more general view of reviews, and this is also a little text-heavy, but bear with me. This is taken literally from a uh, book that we have in the uh, lab's library here called Writing for Computer Science. Um, So this is a book, I was mentioning this earlier, that you can look for a good book to teach you a good writing style for your technical papers. This will be one of those that you can take a look at by Zobel from 2004, so reasonably new-ish. explains generally for computer science how you write good papers. You know, HCI is a specific field. It has its own uh, special variations of these rules, but all that advice that he gives makes great sense even at CHI. So his reviewing checklist uh, suggests different things to think about depending on whether in the end you recommend accepting this paper or whether your personal recommendation is to maybe reject this paper and not publish it at this time. If you recommend accept, if you think, this is a paper that should go into the proceedings, that should be presented at the conference, then uh, you would have to be sure yourself that this paper has no serious defects. What does that mean? For example, if the paper did a user study um, and they use it within groups design and you immediately see, because you know the field, that there is a huge learning effect going on, but the authors didn't pay attention to that. They ignored that fact or they didn't realize it. And this learning effect, you are sure, is, has a major impact on the results that they found. That would be a major defect. You should not recommend acceptance if that's the case. Right? So you have to convince yourself that there are no serious defects in the scientific argument, the contribution, the validity, and so on. Then you've convinced yourself so now you need to write your review to basically be a proponent, you know, a supporter of the authors, and you write your review to convince the editor or the program committee, whoever you're sending your review to, um, to accept that paper. Because remember, typically your review doesn't go directly back to the author. Right? It's not a one-on-one. Your review typically has been commissioned by somebody, the editor of a journal or the program committee of a conference like Kai, and you're, so you're sending your your reviews to those people. Right? Um, this is also making sure anonymity. Right, you as a reviewer will not be known to the um, authors, and the authors will typically not be known to you. Um, so you explain why is this original? Why is this? What's new here? Um, what convinced you that this is valid research? How is their uh, you know validation of their f- claims uh, convincing you? Uh, and you know what do you like about the clarity of the, the structure of the paper? There's probably, I mean, there's always some things that you think could be improved, right? There's, I've never, I think, ever had a paper where I've had no suggestions for improvements, and even if it's just small typos here and there. Um, so you make any suggestions that should be made before it appears in print. Um, if you recommend acceptance, based it depends on what conference you have. At Kai you have a little bit of control still over what happens after recommending acceptance. Uh, because authors are still required to submit a final version that gets checked before they actually make it into the proceedings. In some other cases, you can only make suggestions that the authors may pick up or they may not pick up. Um, so if possible, you shouldn't just say um, change the diagrams, but you should change, say what to change it to, right? You make them make the font at least this big or, or change the description of... Um, yeah, there might be something in there that... Um, I don't know, describes a, a technical detail and you don't understand it. So tell them what it is that you didn't understand and what kind of definitions or explanations they would have to give so that it would make sense to you. Also, you should take reasonable care, and that's an interesting formulation, in checking the details of the paper. So, for example, the paper might have some formula in there, some mathematical stuff. You should go through and roughly make sure that this you know, clears out. Um, that it checks out. You can't ex- we can't expect the reviewer to spend more time on a paper than the author spent on the paper, right? So if you clearly see something's very sloppily written, lots of mistakes, not you know sentences end in the middle uh, of the sentences and stuff like this, of, uh, of the sentences and stuff like that, then we don't expect the reviewer to spend much more time on it. But if it is an acceptable paper, then you should make sure that what's listed there um, checks out. Now, if you, recommend a re- uh, if you recommend a reject down here, you would have to clearly explain what's wrong with the paper and, again, be constructive, possibly suggest how it could be fixed. You need to indicate which parts of the work are useful, which should basically be kept, and which maybe should be discarded. Sometimes there's something really valuable in the paper that you think should be kept and should be passed on to a future su- uh, submission for another conference. And other things you think, oh, those don't make sense because it's you know, replication of prior work. We don't need that part. Again, since you are recommending reject at this point, you don't need to go as much into detail about you know, typos and stuff, um, but you'd still be expected to check the paper to a reasonable level of detail. Rejects are tricky. Why? Because it's devastating to the authors, Right. Imagine yourself having written a paper, and we've been through this many times here at the lab. You write a paper, you spend months of your research t- time working on this, writing it up, you think it's really, really good, you send it in and it gets rejected. Sometimes, you know, just barely under the, under the bar. At that point, what's really, really helpful is to get a review that is helping you to improve your work. Right? Not just telling you, uh, not up to the conference's standard and you know sloppy writing, blah, blah, blah but actually tells you what specifically you should change. And good, good reviewers are hard to find, but um, if they do their job well, then it's one of the most valuable things you can get for your research. Whether you get accepted or rejected, a good review is a good review. <coughs> Whether you re- reject or accept as a reviewer, you should always provide um, Additional references that you were missing, if there's anything that the authors should have seen that they weren't listing in their own references, uh, you should mention them and say, hey, take a look at this paper. It's so hard to get a complete overview of the research in the field these days because the knowledge is just exploding, right? You know, every um, day we get new papers in HCI written somewhere, and it's hard to keep, keep this view complete. A reviewer, as a reviewer, you can add to the author's understanding of the field by giving them additional pointers. You should also ask yourself, and this is really tricky. You write your review, and then you should probably let it sit there and go back the next morning and read it again. You know, like that angry email you were writing. You're going, I hate you. Uh, you know, go back next morning, look at it again, and do the following. For a moment, imagine that you are the author and you receive that review. Would you, as an author, feel? Comfortable with that review? Would it, you know, even if it's a reject, would it feel like um, your work is being, you know, respectfully handled? It's it's a constructive review. It gives you hints what to change and how to change it, and not just you know taking you apart and, and ripping you uh, up in midair. So be fair, you know, if there is something that the authors couldn't have possibly been known, you can't say, oh, but in my lab we did an internal study years ago that proved this. Well, how could they know, right? Um, so be fair, be specific about what you like, what you don't like, and be polite. It's a, it's a very simple rule. Um, and it might sound like you know, sugarcoating, but actually makes a big difference to how authors will receive your review and what they can take out of it. Also, don't claim that you're god, right? You're not the all-knowing entity that you know, knows everything about this research field and that has the ultimate truth. Um, I've often written reviews and said I'm not that familiar with the topic and from my limited understanding of this, this is what I see, you know, is good or bad about this paper. Um, And that's, you know, you should explain that because then the authors will understand is that a limitation uh, or is that a problem that an expert is seeing or is it a problem that somebody is seeing who isn't familiar with with the area. Finally, always check your review carefully like you would check your own paper, right? So Papers shouldn't have typos in there. We just shouldn't have them either. This content was provided by RWTH Aachen University.